You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Welcome, everyone. I'm going to pray for us before we begin. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son uh, to die for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for sending your Spirit to transform us into new people. Father, empower me now and, and soften our hearts to receive your word, that I might teach clearly, that we might know more about you, and that we might love you more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for all for coming. For those who I haven't met yet, my name is Michael Weeks. Uh, you probably you may have heard me read the gospel this morning. Uh, I serve here part-time as a deacon uh, at the Advent, but I study full-time at Beeson Divinity School doing a doctorate of ministry. The doctorate of ministry program, you have to identify a need in your ministry context. You have to propose a solution to meet that need, and then you have to implement that solution and then you've got to try and work out if that solution met that need and solved the problem that you're trying to do. And so these classes that I'm teaching over the next six weeks are the implementation stage of my solution. And so you might be asking, well, what's the need? The need that I identified is that we have a, a kind of anemic understanding of what the gospel is. We have a simplistic understanding of what the gospel is. We, we know it's for our salvation, but it's hard to understand how it kind of... Uh, what implications it has for all of life. How does the gospel change our life? So uh, this week I'm going to be talking about what the gospel is. I want us to really know what the gospel is. And in the following five weeks, I'm going to be talking about how the gospel changes our life. Uh, so, And where you guys come in is that in order for me to un- know if I'm doing uh, my teaching effectively, I need to gather data. Uh, so if anyone can fill out some surveys for me at the end of this class, that would be great. So I've got lots of, so lots of data, as you guys say, uh, to collect and to analyze and evaluate. Uh, so with that in mind, what is the importance of the gospel? I'm just going to set up my recording so I don't go too long. Why is the gospel so important? Well, understanding what the gospel is is important because it helps us understand what it means to be a Christian, how we live out the Christian faith. It shapes your idea of what salvation is, what the Christian faith looks like. And to show you what I mean by that, we've got a small piece of paper here called the Caspari Corpus. I'm going to read from point four and I'm going to talk about it. But... As the drift of my letter permits it, I shall briefly explain what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is one who lives by Christ's example, of whom it is written, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. A Christian is one who never lies, never curses, who does not take any oath, who does not return evil for evil, but, on the contrary, good, who blesses those who curse him, who does good even to them who do evil to him, who loves his enemies, who prays for his traducers and persecutors, whose thoughts even are free from all malice and unchastity, who inflicts upon no one what he does not wish to do be done to himself. 
but gladly imparts to all everything which he desires to be given to him, and in some, who after the washing of baptism is free from sin. I say nothing of greater sins, since no one boasts that he, uh, that he to whom even lesser sins are not permitted is allowed to commit greater crimes either. For knowing you to be a sensible person, I do not, I do not want you to answer me in the manner of the foolish. And who can be without sin? For if a man can, could not be without sin, there would be no commandment to that effect. But it is common knowledge that there is such a commandment, and so we must either describe God as unjust, or, since it is wicked to think thus of God, must believe that he has commanded what is possible. Now, aside from the old English language and the confusing way he's talking about this, the author of this letter is saying that either God is unjust because he's commanded us to do what we can't do, or there's something wrong with the law. Or, sorry, or, or we are able to do the law. I'll go, I need to go back a few steps. What, this, what the author of this letter is saying is that to be a Christian is to follow God's law perfectly, to be without sin, to be able to do that everything that God commands. If we can't do what God commands, then either God is unjust for commanding it, or we are able to do it, as God says. But the Bible presents us with a different option. The Bible presents something completely different. It says that the problem is not with God or with his law. The problem is with us. We are full of sin. The, tes- the testimony of the Bible is that humanity is incapable of doing God's law, of comple- completely fulfilling his commands. And the reason for this is sin. So we see this in Psalm 14, 2, 3, which says, The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. But all have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And in Romans 3, 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are incapable of keeping God's law. There's, there's no way, there's no power in us that we could do what God requires of us. And so the problem with this sin is that it separates us from God. This separation is caused by our rebellion against His Word. Instead of obeying God and seeking to do what He wants, we choose to put ourselves in the place of God. We choose to do our own thing. We don't want to do what God wants for us. And so this sin disorders our desires. It makes us love anything other than God. It makes us love ourselves more than God. And so we're incapable of loving God as he truly desires. We don't obey God, but we continually rebel against his commands. Because of this, God's law becomes something that condemns us. The law is the standard by which we are to live, but time after time we fail to do that. We fail to live up to that standard. And so our actions are measured by that standard and are proved to be wicked. Time after time we fail to do what God commands us to. And so the law becomes proof of our wickedness. It exposes our rebellion against him. And this rebellion makes us deserving of punishment. See, the consequence for our sin is death. And we see this played out all throughout the Old Testament where the sacrificial system was set up so that 
uh, Israel could make sacrifices to God so they could, they could pay for the sins that they had committed. And through the killing of animals, they could some way substitute the animal's death for their own sins. But this killing of animals never made up for the sins that they had committed. The sin was far greater than the sacrifice that they were making. The problem is that the sacrifice wasn't enough. And in our own strength, we can never make a sacrifice that is enough for God. We can never make up for what we have done against God. We are unable to atone for our sin. We need someone else, someone to rescue us from this pit of misery. For only God can forgive us and make everything right. Only God can restore us to a right relationship with Him. I just realized at this point that I have a different accent to you all. And see, if I say something and you can't understand it because of my accent, please put your hand up and let me clarify for you. (laughs) I know you can understand me. That joke proves the rule. Well, the good news is, the gospel is that God does this for us. That He is the perfect sacrifice for us. That He forgives us through Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the gospel. That God so loved us so much, I just said a double twice, that God loves us so much that He sent His Son to die for us. That we might be restored back into a right relationship with Him. Through the gospel, God saves us. Now, the author of this letter that we read is wrong in thinking that God is unjust for commanding what we could not do, or for thinking that we were capable of doing it. In fact, the problem for us is that God is just. The problem is that God is just. He doesn't bend His law for our own needs, for our desires, or for our convenience. He doesn't change it so that we might be able to meet it. The problem is not with the problem is not with God or with His law, but with our ability to do it. We're incapable of doing what God has commanded. And this is because of our identity. Our identity is that we are sinners. We are born in sin. We're not sinners because we uh, go about doing sins as though doing things could make you unrighteous or righteous, but it's about your identity. Your sin flows out of who you are as a sinner. So you don't, you don't start off in a place of purity and then sin and then become impure, but you are born in your sin and your sin flows out of who you are. It's a manifestation of your identity. The good news is that the gospel solves this sin problem. For though we are incapable of keeping God's law and deserving of His punishment, Christ has kept the law perfectly for us and taken our punishment upon Himself. He bore the perfect he became the perfect sacrifice and substitute for the sins of the whole world so that we might be forgiven through him The gospel is the good news of Jesus death and resurrection which brings salvation for all who believe So this is the basic outline of the gospel and what I will dwell on more later but I wanted to highlight a few important things about the nature of the gospel Firstly, the gospel is news. It's a grand announcement about things that have happened in history. 
We learn this from the etymology of the word gospel. In, in the Greek, the word we translate gospel is euangelion. And the eu at the start of the word, it's a compound word, the eu meaning good and angelion meaning news. So literally translated as good news. So we get it from the, the makeup of the word, but also we see this all throughout the New Testament. In Mark 1.14, Jesus comes proclaiming the good news of God. The importance of the gospel being news is that it's something that we receive. It's not a command or an invitation. It's not something that we do, but it's something that we receive. So Mockingbird, if you're familiar with them, they're helpful here by explaining that gospel is proclamation rather than invitation or command. This news is an objective reality. It's news of an event that happened in history, that happened in time and space. It doesn't require us to do anything. But it has been, it is, the thing has happened. God has done it. Jesus has died. So the gospel is news, and that's very important because it's not something that we do. But secondly, the gospel is the good news about Jesus. It's not just any news about any event in history. It's news about who Jesus is and what he has done. It's the news of the historical events surrounding a particular person, Jesus of Nazareth. It's the news about what he has accomplished, what he's accomplished through his death and resurrection. The gospel is all about Jesus. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 1. He says, The gospel regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This news is not about you or me. It's not news about a new social policy or a political leader. It's a good news that God has sent his son to die for the sin of the whole world. This news is God's gift to us, God's grace. For it's good news that salvation has been accomplished for us without any of our works. It comes to us free of charge. We cannot contribute anything to our salvation apart from the sin that makes it necessary. Apparently John Edwards said that, but I'm not too sure about it. We need to get this right, this understanding of the gospel and essentially the understanding of grace right because grace is not a substance. Grace is not something that is imparted to us from God. It's not something that exists apart from God. It's not a medicine that we take to subdue the effects of sin in our life. God doesn't have this big kind of storehouse of grace filled up for him that he can give you in your time of need. Grace is God's action towards us. It's his action in treating us mercifully by sending his son to die for the salvation of you and me, even though we don't deserve it at all. The gospel is God's good news of grace towards us in his son. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus, salvation is accomplished for all those who believe. And this is the essence of the gospel. Everything else hangs off the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is news. It's news about Jesus, who he is and what he has done. It's news about God's grace to us in saving sinners through Jesus' death and resurrection. 
For through the good news of what He has done, we become righteous before God. We become justified before God. That is, our relationship with God is restored by Christ's work. The punishment of our rebellion has been paid for, our sin forgiven. And God declares us justified. He declares us righteous. This is wholly a work of God. It's all His doing and none of ours. It is unmerited goodness. And this is what makes it good news. Uh, thirdly, the gospel brings us freedom. For this salvation comes to us through faith. Through faith in what Christ has done, we are declared justified before God. Through faith, the Holy Spirit works in us, creating a new heart, transforming us into new people. Through faith, we are united to Christ and given a new identity with a new heart. We are adopted into God's family and are now children of God. This new identity with its new heart is now free. It's freed from the law in order to do the law, in order to love God and love others. Therefore, the gospel is the good news that through Jesus' death and resurrection, you are freed from sin. You are given a new identity which is in restored relationship with God, a new relationship to His law. Our relationship with God is no longer based on our observance of the law, but it's now based on what Christ has done for us. We are freed from the curse of the law. The law is no longer that which condemns us, but it's now something that we delight in. Paul writes this in Romans 6, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Uh, I just want to dwell on the, the preaching, the, the sermon that happened at the wedding uh, yesterday morning. It was a, a great biblical sermon from Michael Curry, our, our bishop. Uh, he talked about love a lot and the redeeming value of love. But... What I'm talking about here is kind of goes against what Bishop Curry said. Because love is a biblical theme, but love is the law. To love God and to love neighbor, that is the law. And so his sermon was good in imploring you to love, but the problem is you are incapable of doing so. In your own strength, to love, you do that poorly. You fail to do that all the time, to love God and love your neighbor. So the gospel frees us from the doing of the law, from having to try and love good enough. And the gospel is that God has loved you and he has saved you from your sin and transformed you into a new person and given you a new heart that you might be able to love. So it's not about your striving to do love, but it's about trusting in God, trusting in the work of Christ that you might be given a new identity, that you might be justified before God. You can come back at me in the question time if you feel I've done him wrong. For by the Spirit's transforming work, we're given a new heart which is empowered to do God's will. We are freed from sin. But this doesn't mean that we're free to do sin. We're not free to sin. 
But this freedom is freedom to love God and love others. It's freedom to produce good fruit. Luther articulates this dynamic of being freed from the law in order to do the law well in his, his thesis, The Freedom of a Christian. He writes, The Christian is Lord of all, completely free of anything. But also a Christian is a servant of all, completely attentive to the needs of all. That is, a Christian is free from doing any law. We don't have to do anything. But a Christian is also a servant in that we do all good works. We are free to love others. Insofar as a Christian is free, no works are necessary, he says. Insofar as a Christian is a servant, all kind of works are done. So freedom is a major key. It's a key to understanding how the gospel works in the Christian life. See, being a Christian is not about doing. It's not a religion of sacrifice and keeping laws and all this kind of stuff. Being a Christian is about what Christ has done. The gospel frees us from trying to earn our own salvation, from trying to justify ourselves before God, trying to obey His law. We have been liberated from a religion of doing because we are saved through grace, justified freely through Christ's death and resurrection. Our standing before God is secure in Christ. All throughout the Old Testament, Israel was under an old covenant where they would, make, they would go to the temple uh, time and time again to make sacrifices for the sins that they had committed in order that they might be reconciled back to God and relate with Him well. Uh, we no longer have to do any of these works because Christ has established a, a new covenant in His blood through His death and resurrection. A new way of relating to God. We can now commune with Him freely. Paul writes it to the Ephesians, in Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and with confidence. Through the gospel, we have a restored relationship with God. We are brought into a new covenant, given a new identity. Our relationship with God is secured through faith in Christ and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are now free to live out who we are, free to love God and love our neighbor. And this is through the power of the Holy Spirit. The best way to explain this better, and me not just repeating myself over and over again, is to talk about, is to explain it as a marriage. Uh, when you get married, you, promise, uh, you make promises to another person. And these promises bring you into a covenant and give you a new identity. So the two individuals are no longer two, but one flesh. And uh, through this covenant, this covenant gives you freedom within that relationship. It allows you to be yourself and to love the person freely, knowing that your relationship is not based on what you do, but on the promises that you've made to be together for better or for worse. Your relationship is secure no matter how badly you perform. Uh, so, in, that, in light of that, you're able to do works boldly. You're, al- you're able to sin boldly, knowing that you can stuff up at any point, but it's okay because you've made promises to be together. And this doesn't just go for the guys who stuff up more regularly, I'm sure, than the girls. But the girls are free to love boldly and 
to sin boldly, knowing that their husband will forgive them, hopefully. You are free to love your partner without fear of consequences. This is the gospel. We are secured in our relationship with God so that we can do works boldly, knowing that no matter what we do, we will not jeopardize our relationship with God. We do not jeopardize our salvation because of the acts we do. Because our salvation is one through Christ's work, through his death and resurrection. Our relationship is not based on what we do, but who we are in Christ. We're no longer defined by our actions, but by our relationship with God. Through the gospel, we're given new identities. We're adopted into God's family and called children of God. And from these identities, we're able to bear good fruit, which flows out of who we are. Now, it's important to understand the difference between what the gospel is and what the gospel does. And this is a very nuanced point uh, that might get a little bit complex. But what the gospel is, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which brings salvation for all who believe. That is the gospel. Everything else is affected by what the gospel does. This is played out in God's cosmic plan of redemption. The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection leads us into a larger story of God's cosmic plan of redemption. God's story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. So when we say that the gospel is all about Jesus, this raises many questions for us. Who is Jesus? Why did he die? Why is his death more important than anyone else's? How did he rise again? These questions lead us into a larger story of the gospel, of what God is doing in this world to restore all things. And this is a story that I briefly spoke about at the start, setting up the context of the gospel. But we mustn't get this story, this grand narrative redemption, confused with the gospel itself. This story provides context for us. It reveals what's happening in the future, but it's not itself the gospel. The gospel is the work of Christ. This accomplishes redemption for us and the whole world, and the, this outworking of this redemption is what the gospel does, but it's not what the gospel is. For example, the, the healing of the world, its redemption and renewal, comes about as a result of the gospel. So the gospel is not some therapeutic or social or political program that we can be a part of and advance. The gospel is accomplished the accomplished work of Christ, which we receive by faith. Therefore, when we say the gospel, we mean the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. It's good because of what it accomplishes, redemption and reconciliation, but it's news because he has done it. It's finished. It's a work of the past. But this work of the past completely changes our future. See, this news changes everything. It has massive implications and ramifications for all of life, our attitudes, our morals, our relationships, our resources, our society, our culture. The whole of the world is changed through this news. The gospel changes the very trajectory of history. It's the lens through which we read the Bible and understand all of life. The news is the life-changing... Uh, this news is life-changing because we have a new relationship with God. We've brought, been brought from the dominion of sin and death and brought into the kingdom of life and light. We're given these new identities which 
out of which our actions flow. So who you are affects what you do. Formerly our identity was as sinners, but now the gospel has transformed our identity and has set us free from the old way of life. We are now children of God, free to love others. So is the author of this letter actually right? Are we just law doers now that we've been freed from the curse of the law? Well, yes and no, because we live in this in-between time of the kingdom, as Mark was talking about in his sermon. The kingdom is now, but it's also not yet. So we've been transformed now, but also we haven't been fully transformed yet. We live in the now, but not yet of the kingdom. The kingdom has come spiritually, but not yet physically. Therefore, we live in this new way now, but we're frustrated, as Mark was saying, by our mortality, by our perishable bodies, which are affected by sin. So the way we live now is a foretaste of the way we will live in the future. On the final day when Christ returns, we will finally and fully be united with him and transformed from perishable into imperishable, from dishonor into glory. So although we've been set free now from sin, we still struggle against its effects in our body and in our world. We, we still fight against the world, the devil, and the flesh. But also the cross and resurrection radically changes the way, uh, what it looks like to obey God. The cross and resurrection of Jesus brings an end to the old way of the law of its sacrificial and ceremonial requirements. Christ's work creates a radical new community, a radical new identity which is not shaped around the law but around God's grace, around the gospel formed by his Holy Spirit. We no longer have this single temple that we go to to make sacrifices but we all have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, making us a new community, helping us to relate to God properly. We all have access to God through Christ, our mediator. In the coming weeks, I'll explore more about the implications of what it means to, what the gospel means for our life. So at the bottom of your outline, you'll see next week I'll be talking about gospel and mission. The following week will be gospel relationships, gospel and money, gospel and church, and gospel and city. I'm going to wrap it all up in a second. But I'm going to reiterate my points from before. The gospel is news. It's news about what Christ has done. It's a good news that God's grace to us in sending his son to die for our sins, through which the punishment for our disobedience is paid for, that we might be in relationship with God. See, the gospel secures our relationship with God, giving us new identities so that we are now free to live before God without any fear of condemnation. We are no longer defined by what, but we are rather defined by who we are in Christ. This is all because of what he has done through his death and resurrection. Amen. Are there any questions or clarifying thoughts? Well, I guess I was also struck by Bishop Curry's sermon that there was just something wrong about it, and you clarified that it, he was preaching the law, that we can't love one another it's a good um... I feel for him because I've preached exactly the same sermon right and then we all do and we all uh, we all struggle with our inability to um, 
live the Christian life, I guess you'd say, knowing that who we are as sinners and that just reoccurring gnawing in our hearts that uh, how far we are falling short. So, yeah. Um, I need to do a preface. Uh, this whole this whole kind of ordeal is for me to better reflect on the gospel and how I can better preach and teach the gospel. So I I don't have all the answers yet. Uh, I don't think anyone has all the answers yet. Um, so I might be wrong at some points, and, and I'm helpful for your feedback in articulating things better. Uh, so your question is, now that we're freed to do the law, are we able to do that, basically? Is that, is that right? What, is it, what does it look like in the Christian life to, to do the law? Uh, what is our relationship to the law, essentially? Um, and this is something I've been wrestling with since writing, writing this class. Are we just free to be law doers now? Like, is that our relationship to the law now? And I was thinking about um, kind of the last paragraph, last couple of paragraphs was my reflection on that in terms of uh, we're created into a new community, a radical new community that's shaped around the cross rather than the law. And so uh, we, I mean, there will be people who disagree with me, but this is where I am at the moment. Uh, I just forgot what I was about to say. Uh, what is the relationship between justification and sanctification, which is kind of this extended reflection? Um, I think justification is that there are not, it involves none of our work, right? So we're saved purely by the grace of God. But I think in sanctification, that is uh, 100% us and 100% God, if that makes sense. It's a work between us and God in living out our justification. Um, I need to reflect on that a little bit more. Wouldn't it be 100% submission? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, submitting to... Which, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can't... I can't sanctify myself. He has to do it, but there is a s- submission or giving up. Or... Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, Luther. Calvin says that sanctification is the life of repentance... So of giving up, of repenting to God and um, submitting to his law. Yeah. I would love some more feedback. Yeah, Libby. Um, just thinking about it may have this may have nothing to do with anything, but if you would give me your thoughts when I say this, I would just keep thinking about man today for me. And so it's this today thing that I'm stuck on here. Professor, any thoughts? <laughs> I would love to hear your thoughts, Gerald, but we got a question down here, David. I don't know that this is the answer, but it was a eye-awakening thing to me. I was raised by a mother who, whose object was doing good works. I mean, she was a good work doer, so that is the law. Mm -hmm. And therefore, she trained me to be a good works person. And one Sunday in church, I heard with my ears 
the scripture that said at the closing of every church service that was so freeing to me. It is, go now into the world to do the good works which God has prepared in advance for you to walk in. I'd heard that all my life. And all of a sudden, I realized what it was saying to me, that I, first of all, the good work that comes in my mind to do, take so-and-so, call them up, or whatever it is, is God's idea, not mine. That was the first thing I heard. That's God who put the idea in my head. But I do it or I don't do it. I choose to do it or I choose not to do it. We've all had things like that. Uh, oh, I don't, you should call, but oh, I don't want to do that now. So that was very freeing to know that it was not my idea to do the good works. It was his. And I have a choice in doing it or not doing it. Does, does anybody else see it was revel? It was so freeing to me because I had always been made to feel guilty yeah. if I didn't do the good work. Yeah. That, that word guilty is important because uh, I think, yeah, that's what I'm actually really trying to impress upon you is that there is no condemnation. You can sin boldly. You can do good works and fail time and time again, but you're covered by the grace of God because your relationship with God is not based on your actions or what Christ has done for us. In, on the I think we can be cross. reminded on Pentecost Sunday that he's left someone to help us along yeah. the way. The youth had a T-shirt a few years ago that instead of WWJD, what would Jesus do? It was WHJD, what has Jesus done? Yeah, nice. And to me, that's just a good reminder because if it's what Jesus would do, then it goes back to us trying to earn ourselves. And imitate Christ. Yeah, Michael, I hold to the theology that I, 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 at times I try to vividly see it that the Holy Spirit is around all around me, all of us, all the time. And it's just looking for vessels that will open themselves to it and act on what it's calling us to do. Going back to Ma'am's comment. Back, back. Um, I think you're onto something, but I, I'm hesitant to say that the Holy Spirit's kind of floating around like this mystical power, because the Holy Spirit is third person of the Trinity. Um, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Um, so it's not kind of some mystical, moving thing. But it, but you're right. In um, Once we empty ourselves, once we confess our sin and re recognize, once we get ourselves out of the picture, basically, He fills us. Yeah, thanks, Cookie. So much of what we believe is what we read in the eyes through which we read it. And we each read from a different point of view. The Bible has been interpreted in many, many different forms and, and shapes and fashions. 
I take particular delight in reading the, the Johannine writings, and I'm going to I'm going to undertake to do all of those here soon. But if you if you read particularly the first verse of the first chapter, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the fa from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip down through the reference about John the Baptist. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Yeah. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Yeah. And then you get to John 3.16. And when you read those through my eyes, that is the essence of the gospel. We have all been given the great gift. And how we interpret it, again, depends probably on each of our own experiences in our Christian life. Yeah. Interesting enough, this has got nothing to do with what you just said, but John's gospel is the only gospel that doesn't use the word gospel. It's a funny point. Funny point. But yeah, thanks. Thanks, Coffee. And my Stephanie father was raised, uh, I've been in Presbyterian church, I've been in several denominations, but he was raised by uh, a bunch of relatives who believed totally in so I'm going to wrap it up. If anyone is able to do a survey for me, that would be great. Thank you. Um, come and come to the front after this. But you are free to go. Go in, go in God's love. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.